We all know that even under the very best of circumstances, change can be difficult. Whether something is changing in your life that you weren't expecting, whether you're navigating loss, whether you're, you're trying to respond to something, whether you're thinking about a major, uh, try, trying something new, taking on a new adventure, change is difficult. For goodness sakes, for many of us, buying new pants is difficult, to say nothing of the major, major things that we have to try in our lives. And when we're in that, those places, when we are trying to move from one state of being, from one place in our lives to another, we, we likely in that place question ourselves. We often alternate between, um, between courage and fear. We're often tempted to, to step a little bit further back while we're also hoping to move just a little bit forward. That's the space of change. If, let me give you an example. Have you ever, I don't know, changed the name and logo of a Major League Baseball team? I mean, my goodness. I mean, when you think about change, if you're, you're putting your own sense of identity into that change, who you are, whose people you are, then suddenly, I mean, my goodness, I admit I'm an outsider, um, but uh, I remember a year and a half ago, some of the things we were hearing about this, um, you'd think a lot more was changing than that, right? But that is how we tend to respond to changes that at some level have gotten into that sense of who, who we think we are and who our identity is. And we even stop and forget that maybe that's infringing a little bit on who other people are and, and what their identity is. But, but this, is not about, this is not about baseball, by the way. Remember, game in a week and a half if you want to go to the Guardians. This is about what it means to be in that space of moving into something new. Change is hard, but I'm going to reframe that and say standing on the edge of change, standing on the precipice of change is not simply hard. It, it is two things. It is fraught with uncertainty and it is rich with possibility. And because of those two competing pulls, it's a difficult place to be. We should have compassion on ourselves. We should have patience and grace. And we should have the same patience and grace when we read Paul's letter to the Galatians, which had some strong words. And, and if you know a little bit about the story of the Galatians, these, you might think these were folks who were, who were new to the faith, who were beginning to take on practices of, of the Jewish tradition. And we might look at that and say, well, my goodness, bless them, they were just messing it up, right? But they were actually in that very sacred place. They were in the precipice of transformation, pulled into something new, yet also with a tug back into something that's familiar. It's a very human place to be. They were, for lack of a better term, they were new Christians. Now, here's a secret. We're all new Christians, right? We're all learning this a little bit every day. But they knew it. They were new to it entirely. Most of them, I believe, were Gentiles finding their way um, into this new thing. The problem was that they now had some new teachers who were saying that the way to do this new thing 
was to do so while keeping or taking on some of the old Jewish laws. Not all of them. They didn't have to keep the whole book. But the idea was that they would have to take on things like circumcision and the dietary laws. Some of those things that that were simply an accepted part of what it meant to be now in this covenantal relationship with God. And again, we could be a little bit unkind. We could look at them and say, oh goodness, they're they're just reverting they're backsliding. They're just, they're just trying to hedge their bets a little bit. As if we don't all hedge our bets a little bit. The real question was about their relationship to the law and to the covenant. The real relationship was where they move on from there. Jesus, of course, had been Jewish. And for the Jewish people, the whole religious and cultural identity had been based on a covenantal relationship with God, which carried certain obligations. The law is what held that together. And you can't tell this whole story without acknowledging the intention of the law and the beauty of the law. It was a way to be in community. It was a set of disciplines. Can you imagine any, any community that has no sense of, 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 of obligation to one another without, with no sense of discipline? That sounds kind of oppressive to me. I'm not sure I would want to be there. It was, and this is talking about the law, as Carla Work said, a guide toward the kind of abundant life that God wanted for all creation. The law had been a source of liberation. It was abundance. It was a foundation of community, of holy relationship. It was what allowed the very seeds of divinity and grace to be planted in this holy people that would grow up and bear wonderful fruit. The law had done a lot of good. And it was grounded on a really important promise. God had said... God had promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. So think about that in the moment of change. Think about if you've been been Jewish your whole life and now you're wanting to follow Jesus. Or think about if you have been on the outside of that and you want to enter into this new covenant relationship. What do you do with the covenant that existed and was sacred and holy and beautiful? Do you just sort of throw it overboard? Or, Or do you kind of take hold on to pieces of it and try to do a patchwork quilt of what faith and grace is supposed to be all about? Well, for some, this is a change that meant it could have meant a crisis of faith. It meant that somehow, if you were steeped in this promise your whole life, does that, does that mean it's not valid anymore? And for others, Gentiles, especially following Jesus, meant becoming a part of that promise. So, so maybe following some of those old rules made sense, right? They're not harming anybody. So these other teachers essentially offered a compromise. Keep the law, or at least some part of it, and then live into the, live into the original covenant while also exploring the additional benefits of what Jesus is offering. It really seems like a pretty good deal. I, I probably would have been the first to sign up for that. 
It was pragmatic. It made sense. But it was, I'll use a modern metaphor, essentially sticking with the same operating system that they had before rather than embracing the heart of the new gospel message. The problem with this, according to Paul, characterized by Carla Works, was that the law may have been all of those good and beautiful, wonderful things, but it was not in the business of transformation. Now, now I hope you know I, I am not taking cheap shots at the Jewish tradition in any way, shape, or form. We are talking about us. We are talking about any time religious folks turns a system of grace into a system of worthiness and law. Laws are good, but they are not in the business of transformation. Another scholar, Paul Douglas, said, keeping those, those no-brainer parts of the law, that's my word, not his, uh, the, those parts of the law, which seemed easy enough, right, eat the right food, they would confirm their place in the covenant and keep them on the good side of the empire, which already kind of had an understanding with the Jewish people. But the problem was that to do so would undermine the foundational claim that human righteousness is not the result of human obedience. It is the result of divine action. We don't make this happen out of our own worthiness. And that also means we cannot keep it from happening for other people. This was the whole point. Not to replace the covenant, not to say that laws and disciplines don't have the power to enrich our lives, but that the ultimate gift of grace is, is not something that we earn, and it's not something that we have the power to give, and it is not something that we have the power to withhold. It is instead a gift of God's love, and it is for all of us. The law is not in the business of transformation. And what God wants is nothing less than the transformation of our whole hearts. Today is Juneteenth, Emancipation Day, remembering the day in 1865 when slaves of African descent were finally liberated, the liberation, the, the law had happened two years ago. It took two years to get to Texas. But at this point, this was the day. And this is the day that we honor. We remember that today while naming the work that we still have to do. Work that we have to do to fulfill God's vision, Paul's vision, that in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Greek, Slave nor free, male and female. Amid scripture of law and transformation and slavery and freedom, I can't help but wonder why, why is it that we remain stuck in systems of inequality and supremacy? And where might we find the grace to finally get free of them? The law may be a guide to abundant life, but it is not a guarantee of it. And we also know with the terrible things that can be hidden behind rules and laws. 
Indeed, any system where our worth comes from anything other than the goodness of God, whether that's our skin color, whether that's our family name, whether that's our ability to be good little children who live by all the rules, any of those worthiness structures can and do create fertile ground for the divisions that keep us from loving one another as God intended us to do. Dr. Catherine Meeks, and, and this is a terrible oversimplification, but bear with me, suggests wisely that, that racism and looking back, looking at slavery, was not simply white people claiming and using power over black people. It was white people projecting their own unworthiness. White people projecting their own sense of unworthiness. Think about law instead of grace down at the root of all, at all. It was about white people projecting their unworthiness onto those without power, people with dark skin, then building an economy around it. Then building an entire society around it. Have we come a long way since those days of slavery? Of course, yes. Do we still feel and know the pain of racism from both sides? Yes, though one more than the other. Does the pain seem especially acute these days? It often does. Perhaps we can be hopeful here and say that is because could we be on a precipice of transformation? Can we be in that space where we see more than we did? And that means there is the hope that we can begin to step into a new transformation, a new heart, a new reality, a new openness. Yes, that's the hope, but we feel ever more acutely the pain, the pull back. That makes for a particular sense of pain. Despite these many years, we still cry out, how long, how long do we have to bear it? When, well, I'll speak to white people for a minute, when will we white people finally give up the power over that is in the groundwater? When will we together finally embrace the truth that there is neither slave nor free, but only one in Christ Jesus? From slavery to systemic racism, these are precisely the sort of structures and systems and economies that the grace of God, unearned and freely available to every single one of us, we're supposed to upend because there is nothing, because it's nothing short of blasphemy to give thanks for God's grace while enslaving or diminishing another human being. That's what Paul was getting at. That the law had done great things for us, but that it wasn't in the business of transformation. And without hearts that had been broken open by grace, we, we would forever remain stuck in binary relationships based on who has power over somebody else. 
the transformation of our hearts through grace and expressed through the response of true love of God and neighbor. That was the whole point. So back to the Galatians. There they were. Were they backsliding? Were they reverting? Were they hedging their bets? Let's be fair to them. Let's be kind to them. There they were at the precipice of a grace-filled life. Feeling the pull forward, feeling the pull backward. Between the seemingly logical comfort of the religious structure they already knew. But which, that which carried the same seeds of tribalism and division that they were trying to escape from. Between that and the uncertain yet hope-filled life of grace. That new life sounded great. It sounded wonderful. But it also meant that they had to change. It meant reframing their relationships with one another. And that reframing could change their whole society, their whole world. If in Christ there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, then suddenly, think about how that changes everything. Suddenly the old tribes... Suddenly the old divisions, the old relationships that that assumed a power differential, it's just the way things were, could suddenly be transformed and reimagined as relationships of mutual blessing. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? That the divisions of this world, divisions that God never imagined and never intended could be disrupted and healed. Not that we would suddenly lose who we are. Not that we would suddenly lose our distinctiveness, right? The, the, The particular and precious person that God created in each and every one of us. Rather, that our baptismal identity would be what defines us and that we would instead know each other through relationships of mutual blessing. Baptized in Christ. And really living that out with a willingness to follow the Spirit to the next level of transformation and to the next and to the next after that, we begin to see the hard and hurtful edges of those divisions soften. And eventually fade. In Christ. There is no such thing. As power over another. In Christ there is no such thing. As enslavement. And freedom. Is the heart. Of who we are. Our relationships stop being about. Power and strife and worthiness. And become a blessing. And a gift. Amen.